Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of Focus on Metal. Have a great show for you this week as we welcome back on to the show vocalist Jamie St. James. And this week, Jamie's on the show talking about something that is definitely near and dear to my heart, and that is rediscovering recordings you made goddamn years ago and forgot about. And uh, if you don't know, Jamie, as well as Tommy Fair, they have uh, put out a five-song EP of songs that they recorded shortly after they got dropped from Geffen after the In Heat album. Stuff that has been on uh, various bits of recorded media, most of it unusable. But it just so happened that uh, Tommy, cleaning out his attic, discovered a uh, dat that was pretty damn pristine, along with some cassette stuff. And that allowed us to have the uh, Thayer St. James The Lost Tapes. And I know I can tell you just from my own point of view, going back, I can go into my closet and pull out a big old tray that's got dats in it. It's got CDs in it, old school four track recordings on cassettes. I got some big reels of tape and stuff. And uh, you just sometimes you forget what is on there. And this definitely made me want to go back and uh, maybe get off my lazy ass and uh, spin a couple of them up, see what's going on. But I know you don't really care about what's going on with my tapes. You want to hear what's going on with uh, tapes that uh, Jamie and Tommy made way back in the day. And so for that full story and more, I'm going to turn it over to Richie and Jamie St. James. Hello. So, Jamie? Yes. Richie here for the interview. Jamie, how are you doing? Hi, good. How are you? All right. So, I spoke to you a couple of years ago about recording Without Love in uh, Little Mountain. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, uh, I have interviewed you before. Awesome. <laughs> so, so, I'm looking forward to this. I'm a big black and blue fan, right? So, oh, thank you. We'll, we'll get into the lost tapes in, in, in a couple of minutes, but. I think that the, there is a. We, in order to put this in a bit of context, um, this all happened just after the In Heat record, correct? Yeah, this stuff was the recordings. These are the songs that Tommy and I wrote uh, after In Heat. Actually, that same year, I was kind of surprised to see that. Uh, I didn't remember that it was that close, but it was in 1988. So, directly after touring for in heat the, the bit of touring we did do we started writing uh you know again and uh we, at that point we we're searching for another record deal because we were, got dropped from geffen at that point hmm. looking back on it now is is in heat an album you're really proud of or did you have any reservations about it when it came out well uh there are some songs on there that i think are, are excellent great uh i think it was you know, that's one of those things where Geffen's like going, you guys better have a, you know, something on the radio. You guys better have a hit or whatever you want to call it, you know. And so we're, we had that pressure on us. But, and we, like with Nasty Nasty, we just did what we wanted to do. But they, again, did that to us because uh, they put the I'll Be There For You, which was for a, a movie soundtrack on Nasty Nasty, didn't, you know. Yeah. And so we got kind of bamboozled there. And then again with, we got a lot of pressure from the record company. So, I am proud of all the all all the Geffen records. Um, 
I just think it was handled wrong, and we were pushed in a direction we might not have gone to. But, you know, it, it, for the most part, I listened to In Heat, and I, I like the record. I, I think there's a lot of good stuff on there. When you say it was handled wrong, do you mean that the label handled it, promoted it the, the wrong way, or maybe picked the wrong single? Well, they didn't even pick a single. They didn't even do a video for that one. Uh, and so I don't know what they, re- I don't even know if they released anything. They just, at that point, threw it out there. And it, literally Gene Simmons wanted to buy us off Geffen uh, because he knew they weren't really going to get behind the record. So he offered them a lot of money uh, and they said, no, we're just going to put out there. And if they pop, we want to be there because we know we're going to make our money back. You know, Black and Blue always sells, you know, a, a decent amount, but if it pops, we want it. And if not, that's it. But they didn't do anything. They didn't release anything. Do you think you know, that, any single? Do you think that maybe they were putting all their eggs in the White Snake and the Guns N' Roses basket at that stage? That they were the two hard rock records that were blowing up for the label, and everyone else was kind of secondary. Could have been. Could have been for sure. Because there were some really good songs on on In Heat. I just like a song right off the top of my head. Live It Up was a great song. I thought it should have been a, a single in the first release, but, you know, uh, yeah, could have been. They could have had all their, we, there was probably no eggs in that basket left for Black and Blue. Damn it. <laughs> so who did you go on tour with on that record? Ingve, uh, Ingve Malmsteen, and, oh gosh, I, I can't remember if, uh, I think it was just Ingve Malmsteen, uh, was, was the tour we did. It wasn't a lot of touring. I think there might have been something else in there, maybe some shows with Y&T. Okay. Yeah, because they were on Geffen as well at the time. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, was that Ingve with Joel Lynn Turner? Uh, we toured with Ingve twice. Two did little tours. One of them was with Joel Lynn Turner. Uh, the other one, and so I think that like the one I'm talking about in '88, that was Joel and Turner. Yeah, we did the one before that, and it was Jeff Scott Soto. Okay, did you get a chance to talk to Joel and Turner a lot? Like, as yeah, a, a yeah, fellow singer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We hung out a bit. Uh, he's a nice guy, really nice guy, hmm. good singer. We had it. We were, uh, you know, I think we all went out and had a beer or something like that back in the day. Sure. Okay. And what about Ingve? Did you get to talk to him a lot? Yeah, you know, yeah, I get along well with Ingve. Um, actually, Ingve would sound check, and he'd play. He used to play a black and blue song for the soundtrack all the time. <laughs> it was I could go really. That's funny. Um, and he was a nice guy, you know. I I actually hung out with Ingve a bit. Uh, uh, you know, I got along with him well. I but I wasn't his guitar tech, so I, I was kind of lucky. There. <laughs> so how many how many shows did Black and Blue ever get to play in Europe? Oh man, we were very little. Uh, well, not much. We played Hammersmith Odeon opening for White Snake in '83. I think that's it. I don't. We didn't do anything. The, the, the only other time we played, we played Firefest uh, just a number of years ago. One of the last Firefests there were in uh, Nottingham, right? Yeah. And that's it. That's all we've done. In that, Europe. that must have been incredibly frustrating for you guys. Yeah, it, it definitely was. Um, we got decent touring in America. I mean, we toured with Kiss, we toured with Aerosmith, uh, Night Ranger, Dio, White Snake over here in America as well. Uh, 
Gotcha. We've a lot of good shows in America. But no, we never got a chance in, in Europe. And that's why you don't see us on any of the festivals and stuff. You know, I, I wish we could. We, we're still together. We still play. But we don't get asked to do that stuff because I don't think uh, we just never established ourselves, you know, with a proper tour. Mm. Uh, didn't, didn't happen. What about Japan? Did you get to Japan a lot? Yes, yes. We did Japan only one time. We toured Japan um, in 84. And that was so great. I mean, it was our own shows. We sold out two nights at the Sun Plaza headlining, you know, in Tokyo. It was, uh, we were, did pretty well in, in the early days, yeah, in Japan. Did, uh, did you get any nice gifts from the Japanese fans? Because they're famous for that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I had, I don't, I, over the years, that stuff's disappeared, but my favorite thing was a Jamie doll. So a, a girl, I literally carved a doll, had my clothes on, my face, uh, my hair, everything. It was amazing. Uh, yeah, we got a lot of a lot of gifts. Great, yeah. great people in Japan. Yeah. yeah. So, tell me about the the getting dropped by the label. Was, was it a it, could, it it couldn't have been a surprise to any of you guys at that stage? No, I think we we look. We had a four album deal, and in Heat was the fourth record, and it was basically you know our manager was saying, "Listen, you, you guys, it's 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 this is make or break. I mean, this one's got to go, or else that's going to be the end of it." And the, the biggest Geffen was great to us when they were dishing out money to do a record. What we wanted to do, we're the ones that picked Dieter Dirks for the first album. We're the ones that picked Bruce Fairburn and Bob Rock for the second records. We picked these guys, and we got and we got them. So they were really good, and and you know the money was fine. It was a lot of money for spent on records back in those days. But the problem was always picking singles. And, uh, you know, it just, it never worked out. I mean, the first album, single, fine. Hold on to 18, great. Second record, Miss Mystery was a little too much of a departure. There's plenty of songs on the second record that should have been first, but they just released one, it, that's it, on to the next, you know. I mean, the, the next record, you know, Miss Mystery, that's it, that's all you got, boom, do the next one. So, handled weirdly at Geffen, you know. I don't know... Uh, I don't know that I agree with all the stuff they did, but what you know, it, we, it was a battle, um, battle for sure for us. Yeah. Um, so tell me about. Do you remember the day that they sat you down? Did they sit you all down as a band and say you've been dropped? No. Uh, our manager uh, had to tell me. I think he just gave me a phone call and said, "That's it. You guys are done." Um, that's it. I mean, it was nothing like sitting down, thanks a lot, boys, or nothing like that, you know? It's just like uh, you, you, they told the management, and they told me, and I think they told Tommy first. Tommy knew before I did, I think. But uh, that was it. Okay. And at that stage, how, how was everyone in the band? Were, were you still all getting along well, or was there tensions? Uh, for the most part, there was tensions between our two guitarists. Tommy Thayer and Jeff Whoop Warner. They were they was big tensions between those two guys, and on the road with Ingve, in fact, they uh, they got kind of in a fist fight. So we had to let Whoop, Jeff Whoop Warner go uh, because uh, of that. So at that point, we 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 didn't have uh, our second guitarist. We replaced him. But the deal, you know, the, the record deal was gone anyway. So this is kind of it was it was kind of fizzling. And you know, it is frustrating when you put your everything you've got into stuff, into these songs, into the music, the songwriting, everything we did. And it was it was a great run, you know. But 
it was it was hard to see it go. You know. How did you take the news? I just remember I kind of knew that it was coming, and it, uh, I got pretty bummed out for you know a little bit, and then I just said, you know what? Let's just regroup and, and see what we can do here. Uh, and that's when we started writing these songs. Um, and you know, that's uh, yeah, the, the pressure was on to get another record deal. So the songs had to be pretty good. I, and I believe they are. That's what the lost tapes are. But uh, yeah, I was, I, was, uh, I was a little bummed out for sure. And how did the rest of the guys take it? Did they take it as bad as you or were they okay? Or? I think Tommy was saw it coming. So he's always been kind of like, matter of fact, you know, just like, okay, well, that's it then. You know, uh, me, I'm more emotion- I'm more emotional than Tommy is. Yeah. Uh, and I don't really know what how Pete and Pat reacted to it because I didn't really talk to him much about it. I think we might have just said, guys, it's done. And then when Tommy and I were working on this this music we're talking about now here yeah. for the Lost Tapes, yeah. we were doing it alone. It was just me and him. So Okay. So as far as you and Tommy were concerned, Black and Blue was done. Yeah, we well, it wasn't what we at that moment we said, you know what? Let's find another record deal. And Gene Simmons was behind us, and he would have he was going to possibly put us on his own label. I, he was dabbling with a label back then, Simmons Records. Yeah. But he said, you know, I'll get behind you guys. I'll essentially manage you guys. So Black and Blue was not dead. Uh, so that's when me and Tommy started writing. But then, after about the, this fifth song that we did together. Tommy said, I just don't want to do it anymore. I'm going to move on to other things. So he kind of quit. So that left. That was when Black and Blue was officially done at that time. Okay, so how long are we talking about now from starting to write the first song to finishing the last one? Oh, we, it was only a, eh, six months, maybe. Okay. Okay. So did Johnny write five songs? You must have written more than that. Well, no, I'm talking about six months from when we got dropped until we, till uh-huh. Tommy quit. Okay. So as far as the, uh, the writing and, oh, uh, a month, maybe, maybe a few weeks, really, that was it. We went in the studio and we were in the studio probably for a week, just off and on recording the stuff and then writing uh, probably a couple of weeks. So yeah, two or three weeks really is all it took to do these. Okay. So you would have sat down with Tommy. Surely before you started writing and said, look, we tried to write in the style of Black and Blue and it didn't work. Now we have to go and write, write songs that sound different to that. Was, was that a conversation you had at all or did you just write songs? No, no, we just started writing. Uh, Tommy and I connect really well on song with songwriting. We, we just, we think the same way and we just started doing what we do. You know, we're, we, we're kind of versatile because we can write a song that sounds... Uh, you know, fairly heavy, and then we write something that sounds like it could be more in the vein of cheap trick. You know, we're just kind of that way. So we just started doing what we do. We just started writing. Mm. Do you think that maybe that was one of the reasons why you never stuck with with, a, with people in general? Is that, that a lot, when you look when you look at your four albums, and I'll even include In Heat on with this, it's very varied. You can't yeah. point a finger at it and say Black and Blue are this type of band. It's a rock band, and, uh, you know, the way I look at it is this, and it's the way I looked at it then. I wasn't trying to think, you know, we have to... I just... We, we, the best songs won for me. And is it a good thing or a bad thing that we reverse it all? I don't know. I think it's a good thing, but could it have damp- hampered us a little bit? Maybe. You, it it could have, but uh, I don't... 
think I'd change it because I wanted to do the songs that I loved to hear. I, I loved it. Uh, there's very few songs on the Black and Blue catalog that I go, eh, I don't, want, I don't need to hear that one again. Very few. So I was happy, and it, could, it, could it have hurt us? Possibly. Not as bad as the choices Geffen made on some of the stuff, but yeah, it could have. Okay. So you said Tommy quit. Yeah. That, was that to do the Harlow record, or was that after this? Uh, it was around that time. He, he was before that. I think he wanted to just kind of do something different, and he actually, the first thing he did, I think, was a kind of a punk band kind of a thing, um, where he was just, you know, throwing down Sex pistol sounding stuff, you know? He cut his hair off and all short and started just rocking that way. I, I, I went a, you know, different way. I just got... I formed a one a single guitarist band called Freight Train Jane yeah. and did an album for uh, a Japanese label. So, yeah, Tommy was doing, I think the Harlow thing came around shortly after that. And uh, he was just looking for projects to do, things to do. Okay. Okay. So, the five tracks that are on this, right? Yeah. Um, I'm sure over the years you probably thought those tapes were gone. Well, I, I had a cassette that had, I had two songs and then a half of another because the cassette somehow got erased at, at part of it, you know, probably at night when I had too much to drink or something years ago and <laughs> accidentally pushed the wrong goddamn button in the recorder. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I had like two and a half songs and I knew, I, I, I didn't listen to them really though. I mean, these things are so, they're, they're just like so long ago. I didn't. Really, I was listening to them in the early '90s, trying to think, hmm, should I do something with these things? But it's long gone. Um, and when Tommy, Tommy basically sent me the tapes that he had in his attic, and literally they were in his attic, and he was moving. He said, "You want the black and blue stuff I got?" So he sent it to me, and it made me realize that we. I, I did find my old cassette, and I listened to some of it, and I, I said, "Yeah, yeah, this is good stuff." So, yeah, it was just kind of that's what sparked it. Mm. Now, trying to get it up to speed these days when it comes to sound and, you know, with technology and all that, that must have been a bit of a challenge. Well, the, pro- the two biggest challenge was finding any usable tape because most of the tape had disintegrated. It was not playable. It, it sounded like warbly and fuzzy and mess. It, it was unusable. So that's what the biggest battle was in the beginning, and we ended up, Luckily, Tommy found a DAT tape, a little DAT, digital audio tape that we mixed to four of the songs. And that was where we got those four. The fifth was on a cassette he had that he really never played, and it was safe. But the quarter-inch mix that we did, the two-inch tapes, I never played it. I don't, I don't even, didn't even bother with it. It was done on two-inch analog. Mm. Uh, so great-sounding stuff. But those DAT tapes and that one cassette saved us. And then we just took him to our the, the original engineer producer who did it with me and Tommy, Pat Regan. And he kind of mastered them, made it, brought them to life. I ended up playing, so I'm a pretty good drummer. I played cymbals on top of it to get, brighten it up. And, and so I just overdubbed cymbals. That was all we had to do. And uh, just, he, he worked his magic and mastered it. Sounds fantastic. Were these recorded in a in a professional studio, or were these these done in like in your house with with Tommy, or how were they how were they recorded in the original? This was done in a a very pro but small setup. Huh. It was literally a, the guy had 
converted his apartment in L.A. into a studio, but it was a proper studio with a big two-inch analog machine, huge board, all the right equipment, and literally he converted his balcony into like a, a, a sound room that you could record guitar and stuff. It was amazing. He, he soundproofed his little his apartment. So... It was done there, and it really came out great. I mean, we all the equipment was there, so it was just about performance. And and Pat Regan is an excellent engineer, an yeah. excellent producer. Producer, he's a great, he's great. I've used him on other things. He did the freight train chain uh, project for me, yeah. but uh, he also yeah he's done a lot of stuff. But he's worked with Kiss and a bunch of different bands. Uh, your vocals on this now were they one take, two take kind of a thing, or can you remember back then? Uh, no, they well yeah they were. I would sing it, and just like I did any record I did. Uh, okay, do that line again. Uh, sing it again. Sing the sing that verse again. Sing the whole verse. You know, I just sang, sang, sang until I got a good take. Uh, that's how I did all the records. And then I would do a chorus, and then I layer myself on top of the chorus because I do a lot of the harmonies myself. And then I think Tommy probably sang some of the stuff with me in the uh, backgrounds. He always did uh, to make it give it give it a little different sound, but. Um, yeah, it, I sang it just how I did all the records, you know, one verse at a time till you get it right, then, you know, just the, the whole way. You know, we, we did it right. It sounds like a record. Yeah. And was the original intention on this to send these songs to labels to try and get signed? Yes. I think that's what it was. And Gene Simmons actually financed it. And, uh, you know, we were going to either put it on his label or send it to a, a, a or get another deal at another label. And these, this might have been the record. I mean, the recordings are that good. I don't know if we would have, you know, redone it. Uh, so it was, uh, I mean, it was just do the best we could at that point. Yeah. I think Gene's label around then went belly up. Yeah, I think it did too. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, but, uh, you know, I think I remember he wasn't pushing for that. It was just, you know, I'll, I'll essentially manage you guys and get you a deal somewhere. So okay, do, do you remember any other labels sniffing around asking about you guys uh, in, during those times in '88? Yeah. Not really. No, not really. In the beginning, there was a lot of labels that were interested in Black and Blue when we signed with Geffen. There was I, like three different, three or four different labels. I'm, I'm thinking in '88 now. You know that music style that you guys were doing was massive. This, this wasn't '92. Or 93. And I'm, I'm surprised you're saying that there wasn't a lot of labels still looking for you guys because well, you're a major label act. Well, here's the deal. We never found out because we never got a chance to shop it. Tommy quit too soon. Yeah. So <laughs> okay. it, no one heard it. So you're, you're very, it's very true. Somebody might have jumped on it and it could have made all the difference in our career. But when Tommy quit, it was the whole thing went shelved. So no one, no label heard it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So uh, you've obviously spoken to Tommy a lot about these songs. Um, sure. Did he listen to a, a lot over the years as well, or was it just no. it's in the attic? Never listened to him completely. No, he didn't. Neither one of us did. Uh, I, I like I said, I stopped listening to it. I, I remember listening to some of the stuff, you know, in the ninety, ninety one, ninety two, early nineties. I can remember I, I had it. I'd listen to it sometimes to see to remember what it was, but it's been years. No, he hadn't. And when I told him my idea, it was my idea to release this. He he listened to it and he goes, "You know what? Saint, you're right. This is too good. 
We should. It needs to go out there. We had both not thought of it until he sent that to me when he moved. It's just it's that simple, man. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I know. So who played bass on it? Did Tommy play bass? Tommy played bass. Uh, there's some synth bass underneath as well that Pat uh, Regan played. So Tommy played bass. I remember that. Tommy thinks that we might have had Patrick Young play bass on one of the tracks. I don't remember that. And I asked Pat, and he says, I don't know if I did or not. I don't remember. <laughs> so I do I do remember Tommy playing bass because I told Tommy, I said, dude, you can play the bass. Just play the play it. You know, it's simple. These are these songs that, you know, uh, don't require, you know, Getty Lee. We just need the, some cool bass. So yeah, I remember Tommy playing for sure. But I, Pat may have, we don't, nobody knows. <laughs> Did, did you or, or Tommy think at all that maybe we should add some stuff in it now that it mightn't sound that good? We can actually retouch, re, you know, we can add parts now to the original songs to make it sound no. better? You, didn't no, even, didn't, even, didn't need it. Didn't need it, wow. Don't, doesn't need it. Songs were well written, songs were well recorded, the performances are awesome. Didn't need it. All we just needed to do was to enhance just, just mastering, just mastering. EQing, making it sound, you know, so the the, the cassette sounded the same as the DAT and, and, and boosted it up so it was going to be nice and loud. And it is an awesome analog recording, which you don't hear much anymore. Mm. It's got that going for it right now. It's old school, and it sounds great. Mm. How many unreleased black and blue studio tracks are there of the early years that you might have been able to add to this? Well, there is some, but I don't know where they are. They're, they were on two-inch recordings again. There was there's some extra stuff from In Heat, Nasty Nasty, and there was some extra, one extra song from the first album that Dieter Dirks could still be in his studio somewhere. No, it isn't. All those tapes went to Geffen, which uh, after Geffen folded, went to Universal. They bought everything. So any of that stuff that was extra is in, in those... Uh, somewhere Universal has it and there are some gems in fact there's one song called Survival that Tommy and I wrote with Ted Nugent and Ted Nugent's playing all the solos on the on the song we, we were going to put it on In Heat that didn't make didn't make it because of Gene Gene didn't want it but it's a full fully recorded song with vocals done fully done with Ted Nugent wow. no, buried not, somewhere you're not talking a demo now you're talking professionally done in a studio. no 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 Done in the same studio at the same time when In Heat was uh, was being recorded in Rumbo Studio. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, uh, we were the next band in that studio after Guns N' Roses. It's the same place they recorded, and that song was recorded there. We also did a version of "It's My Life," Paul Stanley song. Yeah, uh, that uh, who I guess uh, Wendy o. Williams is the only one that did it. I, I think, but we did one of the, we did that. It had vocals. Uh, there's another song that we. Uh, did that was written by Brian Adams, uh, and I, I, it's called "You Walked Away Again," and we recorded it. It had all the vocals on it. I don't know where it is. Oh wow, that, that has to be frustrating for you because you know this is thirty something years ago now at this stage, and you just can't get your hands on this stuff still. Yeah, it it kind of sucks, and it should be in our hands. We should be able to have all this stuff and do something if we want with it because nobody else you know, they're not going to Universal yeah. put out the, the best of black and blue in like 2002 or something like that 2003 yeah. and that's the last thing they're going to do that's it so you know I'd love to be able to get the stuff back 
and be able to do what we want with it, you know, even re-release some of the stuff in like a, a properly done box set with all those songs I just mentioned and more. Yeah, you know, uh, maybe one, maybe one day. Now you'll tell me if I'm wrong, but after so many years, doesn't all the rights to all this stuff revert back to ye? We're looking into that. Uh, it depends on your contract. Okay. It depends on the contract you signed initially. So there is something to that, and we are looking into it. Okay. I don't know. Don't know what what that'll. But <laughs> uh, I don't know about the album. Okay. <laughs> I, I just want to finish up. I just want to ask you about some of the producers you worked with with Black and Blue sure and sure t- t- so I want I want you to tell me what's the one thing you learn from each one so I'll start with Dieter Dirks <sighs> Dieter Dirks uh, that was the first yeah that was the first uh, and I kind of just let him lead me uh, uh, how he wanted to record me as a singer and it was odd because I did it in the control room standing next to him at the board uh, with a 58, just a 58, same mic everybody uses live. So I was like, wow, uh, this is crazy. But it was it was a unique experience because he was right there with me and he could, you know, give me suggestions instantly and I wouldn't forget him. And we did a lot of crazy harmonizing. And he taught me some strange different ways of harmonizing with myself to create a, 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 a cool sound. And a lot of high voices, a lot of different voices. And he he's very musical. And he would give me these melodies to sing on top of myself that I would have never thought of. And and I thought, wow. And and, and that that's pretty much what I learned from him was a, a, a kind of a different way of uh, harmonizing, which was really cool. That it, it layered it, and it was really, really great. Uh, Bruce Fairburn. Yeah, Bruce... Uh, I think he, one of the things I took away from Bruce more than anything was songwriting. He he taught he told me something about songwriting that I always remember, and it was said, "Look, when you write these songs, think of it as a movie. Something's got to keep people wanting to watch it. As we do these songs, we have to keep them interesting. So they, different things are going to happen throughout the songs, and we have to build and we have to create reason for the people to keep on listening to this song." They treat it like a movie. And he was right about that. Because you can build, you, instead of playing the same verse over and over and over again, you know, and they're throwing the chorus, you can build. So you can treat the verse different than the first verse, so much different than the second or the third. And it keeps it interesting. Yeah. So that, 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 I take that away from uh, Bruce. He was great. And Gene? Gene was uh, awesome because... He, he has a he has a definite opinion, and he he'd hear something and he'd just tell you straight up that blows, and I said, okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, I think one of the things with Gene and it's the reason why we asked him to, to 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 work with us was because he was very good at letting us be ourselves without doing something nutty, um, and and he was just. He was like he was almost like a member of the band. Uh, we would sit. He was there for every pre-production uh, rehearsal, uh, in there with the writing, and uh, just a great work ethic. That guy, that guy had. Uh, it was a blast to work with him, and uh, just he put a lot of effort into it, a lot of energy, and he was he was really got more involved with the songwriting than the other guys did. You know, was was Gene the sort of guy that? He'd come around from the other side of the glass, pick up a guitar and say, this is what I'm looking for from you. 
Well, he would make suggestions, you know. He didn't really pick the guitar up that often, but he would listen to what we did, and he would have an instant opinion that was, you know, was a lot of valid stuff, you know. But he, he, he was hands-on, and he did, uh, we did vocals, he did some background vocals with us. You can hear it on some of the songs, you can hear his voice. It's hard to hide that voice, but, uh, you know, he'd get out of the studio with us sometimes, and we'd... Uh, we, we, you know, I think we had so much fun recording with him. I, I, I remember those days very well, and it was a, just a blast uh, working with him. He's a, he's a great guy to hang out with when you get a chance to. Mm. <laughs> most, did, most, mostly you don't. How did he challenge you as a singer, though? He let me do what I wanted to do, but he, if you listen to the first two records, you hear my voice is kind of smooth, and he grappled me up. He, he, he wanted me to get a little tougher. So the very first song I sang like that is the song Nasty Nasty. And he, he, he kind of pushed me to, to get a little bit more that direction, which I, I learned to love, you know. I could do that voice, uh, and I still can do it to, to, you know, live today, but that was something that was different. And he, he pushed me, and he said, you know, he, he, he pushed me to go higher and higher all the time. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a challenge, you know, and, I'm, and I'm grateful for it. That seems to be one of the things that I, I get a lot from musicians, especially singers back in the 80s, when I ask them about the material they recorded, they all say to me, I wish it wasn't so damn high to sing. <laughs> well, you want to know the truth is, I, it doesn't bother me too much. It's, it's, it is tough when you, well, let's say black and blue, when we play live now, what are we going to do? 45 minutes to it or an hour. So it's not that difficult. I'm not doing a three hour show. It's a two and a half hour, two hour show. Yeah. So, but I can sing all the black and blue stuff in the original key, exactly how it was sang on record. I can still do it. So I'm not too, you know, doesn't bother me too much, but I, it, everybody tried to sing so high back then, you know, yeah. uh, it's crazy, but, uh, I, luckily I can still do it. So eh, it's okay with me. <laughs> um, the best black and blue show you did in the eighties is the one that stands out for you. Oh, geez. Uh, <sighs> you know, hard to, hard to pinpoint one. Um, I would say the very first show we did with Aerosmith because that was the first arena, you know, that we ever played. We played, it was in uh, Arizona. I think it was Tucson, just, you know, the whatever the arena was there, or, or it was Phoenix, one of those two. And uh, I'm walking, I'm sit, I changed my clothes, I'm sitting back there, and uh, the lights go off, and I hear that 14,000 people roar, and I, and I just... Uh, got weak knees i couldn't believe i go what in the hell hmm. it was like amazing and i'm walking down the hallway and i took a left to go to the stage and it's taped on the floor it says walk this way uh, a la aerosmith hmm. and i'm realizing i'm about to open for aerosmith in front of fourteen thousand people this is insane and scared to death walking up those stairs weak knees all that stuff after the second song it was like doing heroin give me more give me more you know <laughs> Was that the permanent vacation tour, or was it before then? That was uh, called Back in the Saddle Tour. That was when Joe Perry and uh, Brad Whitford came back into the band. Or maybe it was just Joe Perry, it, uh, but it was when they were back to the original five guys. Okay. And Done With Mirrors was not out yet. Okay. All right. Um, I've been asking singers this as well. What's the sickest you've been at a live show, and you've still been able to pull it off? Oh. Well, 
was in Warrant for four years, the band Warrant, yeah. and I had to play New York City one night, and I had a sinus infection. Uh, it was snowing, ice cold. It was at a club that was freezing. I remember the dressing room was freezing, and I was just sick. And with a sinus infection, I somehow came out there. Now, I don't think I sounded great, but uh, I finished the show. And that was the last show, and I had to fly back home to L.A., and I just said, oh, I, I give you a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> that was rough. But you want to know how you do it? I'll tell you how you do it. I walk out on stage, <laughs> and, <laughs> I walk out on stage, and I tell the crowd, listen, I am sick. I am so sick I'm going to die here. But guess what? I could cancel the show and go home and like a pussy, or I can fucking do this show and party with you people. What do you say? Boom, they're on your side. Yeah. You just go, and you go for it. Yeah, I think one of the things I've always said is that if you're honest to the crowd and you tell them up front, and I know there's a party who wants to say, look, I don't want them to notice because um, I'm putting on a show and they're expecting a tip-top show, but I am human. You know? Yeah. So if well, that was my yeah. that was my approach. That was my approach. I just said, I'm gonna tell them what's going on here, and I'm gonna be the hero instead of the fit, you know the guy that just didn't didn't try. And you know, the, people loved it. Yeah. They, you know, like they don't want to, you know, they don't want it to cancel. They're, so you can get them on your team, and then just do your best and make it make a positive thing out of it. Hmm. Now I know you. I know the band is still together, and you still play with Pete and Patrick, and you're yeah. obviously great friends still with Tommy, but. When is the last time you spoke to Jeff Warner? Uh, I haven't spoke to Jeff Warner in probably a year or two, a couple of years. Patrick has spoke to him. He's been through a lot. He's had some medical issues and uh, stuff like that. And um, uh, he's, I just, you know, hope he's healthy and doing well. He he definitely had put, been through a lot uh, with medical problems and that kind of thing. So haven't talked to him in a couple of years, but uh, I hear he's doing good. Okay. And you played, it was a... When, when did you play with Tommy on the cruise? Was that earlier this year? Yeah, that was just uh, earlier this year uh, on the Kiss Cruise. Tommy came up, jammed out with three songs with us. It's a blast. Must, that must have been an yeah. That must have been an absolute blast. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, it's very special. You know, I just look over and go, yes, yes. Uh, I was I had the, had the best time. It's awesome. Yeah. So so Jamie, tell everyone where they can get a a, a copy of the Lost Tapes. The Lost Tapes is available only one place. You go to ThayerStJames.com. Simple as that, and there you can. It doesn't matter where you are in the world; you can purchase it, and uh, it'll be shipped out to you. And that's it. Mm. You won't find it. You won't gonna find it on a streaming service. It's just for people that want physical product. If you, old you know, school, you're old school. Old school. That's the way we're doing this thing. <laughs> and and you know, it's not. It's not. It's not. There's no plan on doing it on the streaming services because I don't think it would work that way. But uh, you can order it on ThayerStJames.com, and I promise it's great. It sounds excellent. So, as uh, Biff from Saxon used to say when we played with those guys live, it'll blow your fucking eyebrows off. <laughs> so you, you're still writing music, black and blue stuff, or is that all more or less done now? Uh, I can if I have a, a reason to. Sometimes I get a little idea in my head, and I'll just grab a guitar and kind of strum on it and I, I have some notes and uh, some things in my phone. I have a recording device in my phone that I can I have a bunch of stuff that I just when I hear, when I think of something I still do it out of habit. But if there's a reason to do a recording then yeah, I would love to and do it but uh, just haven't uh, 
it's real rough these days to to uh, to do a record is not as uh, it's not the way it used to be. Um, there's no money in, in, in the thing really. Uh, it's just a different world. Yeah. So, and it's not all about money. Sometimes it's about creating. But I I you know you have to have the money to actually do the recording properly. I don't I don't like doing things cheap. I, I, if it's going to do it, it's going to sound great. So I think I think we'll see. personally as a fan, it's not lost on me that Kiss are coming to an end. And that Tommy might want to get back and do something with you guys. Well, I don't think he has any any intentions of joining Black and Blue again. But uh, you know, doing something with Tommy, like like yeah, writing, write music, be. yeah. Sure, sure. I, I think that would be possible. We'd have to ask him. But I, I, look, with Tommy and I get along beautifully. Uh, we we enjoy working together. Both of us have talked about how fun it's been doing this project together. You know, so anything's possible with the. Uh, you know, having Tommy help out with some stuff, but we have two really great guitarists in Black and Blue now. You got Brandon, Brandon Cook. Uh, yeah, I interviewed Brandon, Brandon I think two years ago. He had some band. Yeah, no, really, yeah, he's really been, nice guy. Nice guy, and he's uh, been in the band for gosh, maybe ten years now or something. It's been a while. And then Doug Rappaport, who's new, is in our band. He's a great, great guitarist too. So we're good. Yeah, yeah. So Jamie, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, always glad to help. Uh, well, you know what? Definitely appreciate the help for sure, and uh, thank you very much for doing the interview. I, let me know uh, when when it's gonna yeah see the light of day. Yeah, I'll let you know. All right, Jamie. Okay. Have a good rest of the night. Thank you. You too. Yeah, Thanks. No Bye. 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 And there you go. And as Jamie said, you can only get that in one place. Again, that's fairsaintjames.com. Go up there, really easy, got the quick story there, you got two links, domestic and export customers, and what Jamie doesn't mention as well is this thing is not just sealed and delivered, it does come to you autographed as well. And I'm sure they're not going to last forever, so if you're really thinking you want to get a hold of these five songs, you probably want to go ahead and get that done now. And again, like I said, fairstjames.com. And if you're curious, on uh, the prior interview that we did with Jamie, that was back on episode 289. Yep, way back in 2016 as part of our massive Little Mountain Sound project. So if you want to check that one out, easiest thing to do. And you you can go to Amazon or up on iTunes, but also you can go over to FocusOnMetalPod.com. And then up in the top in the menus, Just go over to Projects and then select a Little Mountain Sound. And down there you will see episode 289, Talking with Jamie St. James. And while you're up there, feel free to check out all the other stuff as well. You figured that, uh, you know, this episode is, uh, is 540 and there's just a ton of stuff we've done in the past. And almost all of it is available up there. And a good chunk of it's still available on iTunes or on uh, Amazon Music. But some of the run rate weekly episodes, we tend to drop off of the feed as we go forward. But a lot of the project stuff, the Dio Strange Highways, Little Mountain Sound, Kerrang, those things, yeah, we kind of plan on keeping those up for as long as we can. And before I roll out of here, I just want to mention that a few Mondays back, was able to go and head out and see Sammy Hagar and The Circle out at Xfinity out in Mansfield. And I got to say that Sammy once again did not disappoint 
It was uh, it was great to see that um, Vic Johnson up and about. Last time we saw the band, the first tour for the Circle, Vic was uh, had some leg injury earlier in the tour, so you could tell it was just killing the guy, not being able to jump around and be a stage present kind of guy. But this time he's able to be up there and and walking and jumping and running. It was good stuff. There, it kind of added a lot of energy to an already energetic show with uh, with Mikey and Sammy there. Jason Bonham playing his ass off as well. Just an awesome, awesome, great show. It essentially kicked off my summer concert season in incredible, great style. And I should also mention, and I mentioned it on Twitter as well, that Mikey, he just has not lost the voice. And, uh, you know, one song, Sammy goes off to rest his voice and... The three remaining guys, they kick into a version of Unchained with Mikey doing all of the lead vocals plus the bass. And it was great to hear that song again. And he did one kick-ass job on the vocals for that song. So they still got a bunch of dates left. So if you have a chance and tickets are still available, I will urge you to go out and check out Sammy and the rest of the circle out on tour this summer. Great stuff. Guy can still bring it night after night. So there you go. There is my uh, my edifying speech on the Red Rocker. So that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next time, as always, remember. Focus on Metal. Is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.